0: Welcome to the Archive Room podcast: stories of Manx life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. Manx Radio. Faster my Judith Lay here, opening the door to the Archive Room. Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in and prepare for a gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. When we left the archive room last week, I said that today we'd get our first taste of holiday making on the island and discover how tennis came in great style to Douglas. But first, let's meet up with Alfie Gilmore again, chatting with David Collister about his working life in the early 1900s at Todd Hunter and Elliot. When I went to trade, first of all, of course, uh, in Todd Hunter's
1: shops, they're all pulled down now, the workshops and that, but they were quite happy days. It was, it was hard work, lots of times, of course. Uh, we had lots of fun. Uh, there were eighteen ironmongers in the front shop to start with, and uh, here day, when we, when the hot and cold water system started on the promenade with the boarding houses. I can remember twenty-seven plumbers working in, six or eight blacksmiths, and one electrician. It was a big firm those days. However, another story of Todd Hunter's when. Uh, We used to go to the steam packet company many a time to uh, bring stuff up from the warehouse to Todd Hunters, you see, from from the steam packet warehouse. The donkeys, years after, they were emptying for an alteration in the steam packet warehouse. emptied it all out and they found a ladder there which had been posted, addressed to Todd Hunters 20 years previously. (laughs) from Slingsby's, and this ladder had been lying at the back of everything in the steam packet warehouse over 20 years, David. <laughs> I don't know, did they ever claim for another one or not? I don't know, but that, that, that ladder was lying there for 20 years. Now then, also when we were working out in the town as an apprentice, I'll always remember working in Sartfell Road Houses, uh, Mr Wade, Stanford Wade, his son eventually became a dental surgeon in Woodburn Road there, opposite, almost opposite Top of Derby Road. However, he was getting some nice houses built in Starkville Road by Creer Brothers, and they were happy days with Creer Brothers. They were good joiners and that, and happy gang. And the Plasters in particular were the Miney family. There was Fred, Alan, and now... Uh, Oh, Dan. Dan, yes, that's right, mm. Dan. And, of course, a labourer. And now the Miney family were always interested in the Douglas Coral Union. And Donkeys, years previously, they used to, Fred Miney, old Fred Fryney, he had a sister called Maggie. Mm-hmm. Now, Maggie Miney was uh, in the, the Coral Union as well, and she was always a leading lady. Now, all day long, the Miney brothers... And the old man, they'd be singing their songs, which we were practising for the choral union. Yeah. And, of course, we'd join in, you see. There yeah. was many a time somebody was singing around. We were told off then, you know, or, or, or a handful <laughs> of plaster thrown at us to <laughs> shut up. But it was it was wonderful days to hear. I don't think there was a tenor among them. I think there were baritones, mm. but they were real good voices, the Mayanese. But they're singing their songs all day long. It was wonderful. And when the kids come out of school... All the kids, you know, from Westminster Terrace and Alexander Drive and Eleanor Drive and all those, all the kids were all outside listening to these fellas singing. It was a concert for the kids. It was was wonderful. It really was wonderful.
2: And they put the plaster on while they were singing. While
1: they were singing, they were working there, yes. And I tell you how tough, uh, uh, I hope there's some young men or even older men listening to this, Try some time putting a handful of mortar on the mortar board. Yeah. And the mortar board was about 18 inches square. Mm. And hold it with one hand. Yes. Now, old Fred Mindy could. Mm. The others couldn't, but old Fred Mindy, he was really strong. Uh, even a bucket of mortar. Put yeah. a bu- Lift a bucket of mortar up with one
2: hand. Try it. Yes. And by Jove, he was tough, but he was really strong. You weren't always with Todd Hunter and Elliot, though. You, you worked with the gas company as well, didn't
1: you? Yes, eventually, of course, the uh, work went very slack in Todd's. And you had winter work scheme, you see, before the war. Uh, when he got paid off on one job and there was nothing in the building trade, well, he went and looked for something else. And for a little while, I was down at Braddon Quarry mm. uh, with uh, oh, Mr. Knifton. He was running the quarry down there. And then, of course... Uh, I was on Douglas Head Marine Drive, and uh, then I was lucky enough to get into the gas company. I was a lamp lighter when I was in the gas company, because sometimes the gas company was slack as well, and they were very good to the employees of the gas company. They said, now, if there's nothing in the plumbing trade, will you go labouring? And I said, yes, this r- appertained to other fellows as well. Mm. And I said, yes, certainly. I don't want to get paid off, because I was a married man by this time, just before the war, and... Uh, they give me a chance he said now will you go lamp lighting and i said yes so because there were lots of lamps gas lamps around the town those days and they were on a the, they were on the pilot light you pulled a lever for on and off you see at whatever the lamp lighting time was, like lighting up time was perhaps 4 o'clock or half past, according to the light of the winter and summer, you lit them out at lighting up time, and you put them out at midnight.
2: What, how did you do that? Because they were tall lamps, weren't
1: Yes, they? well, you went around the push bike, and you had a you had a piece of copper tube or a walking stick with a hook on the end of it, mm. and uh, you reached up, and the wire coming down from the bottom of the lamp was only about a foot long, but it was long enough to... Pull the lamp yeah. on or off, whichever it was, and lit by pilot light. You right. see, yeah. And of course, uh, there was one place in particular where it was funny. Shaw's Brow and all the old houses were still intact those days, pre-war. Well. There was nothing pulled down. And uh, I used to go over the Street, in, and there was a couple in Athler Street. Then into Shaw's Brow, there was two or three in Shaw's Brow, and then you went down the steps to Hanover Street. Now, then, on the way down the steps, you got to a, a lamp on the bracket on the wall outside an old boy's window. Mm. And this old boy, Mr Jones, Natty Jones, he was, poor man, was. I eventually discovered, he was crippled and lying in bed most of the time. Well, of course, I didn't know that. And, of course, I put the lamp out at midnight. And when I got into Hanover Street, I looked back, and the lamp was relit. Really so I thought, well, I wonder what's gone wrong. So I went back up. It might be a slack lever, you know, the balance has gone wrong. Mm. So I went back up and I put the light out again. And believe me, when I put that light out, I was met with that tirade of foul language. Said, leave that so, 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 so lamp lit. You see, I don't what's this at all, you see? He said, leave the lamp lit. So I went, the following morning, I says to Tommy Cray, the foreman plumber, about this bracket. Oh, he said, I forgot to tell you. Natty Jones, he says, he lies in bed and he reads by the lamp light. And when he's finished with the light, he'll put it out. And so I said, he used well, to reach out the he window? Reach. Yeah, Natty Jones used to reach out through the broken window with a walking stick <laughs> and put the light out, and well, that was all right. So I had no need to light or put out that lamp in future. He put it on when it was convenient for himself. Of course, in the gas company lots of times, you know, when you went in gas company first thing in the morning, half past seven start whatever it was, the lads from the retort house were in having breakfast or a cup of tea Mm-hmm. Or, or a good meal, you see. Now, they had what you call a, uh, a communal frying pan, big frying pan. Some fellows have an egg, bacon on it, others sausages, other fellows liver and onions, or whatever it was. If you'd have seen that frying pan, David, you'd have laughed. <laughs> and I never got washed. <laughs> and this frying pan was about four or five blokes all sitting at the one table and what they put in the frying pan to get cooked, they just take it out while the frying pan was in the middle of the table, you see. Yeah. No hygiene, whatever. <laughs> no hygiene, whatever. And there was an old boy there by the name of Freddie Sweetman and his son was Freddie as well. And they used to share one another's breakfast and this particular morning, Young Freddie Sweetman says to his dad, My jove, Dad, he says, The liver is tough this morning. What? There's nothing wrong with the liver, boy, he says. And he's doing his best to cut through the liver as well, but we had to stop him because somebody had put a Philip Sticker sole on the frying pan. <laughs> he thought it was his liver. <laughs> we had to stop him from eating it. <laughs> no, the man and old Freddie, the same, same thing, he said... Uh, have a cup of tea. So somebody refused a cup of tea because we knew what was on. And young Freddie says, there's something wrong with the tea, Dad, this morning. He says, the old man says, there's always something wrong with something with you. He said, what the hell's wrong with the tea this morning? He said, well, it's funny. We had to stop him from drinking it because somebody had put lemonade crystals in it. (laughs) Oh, happy days. Also in the coke yard, there were tons and tons, dozens of tons of coke going out every day. And the lads, sometimes they would bring bits and pieces of sweets and that back from restaurants or sweet shops and cafes they'd been. And this particular day, I don't know who it was, that said to one of the drivers, now bring something back with you, you haven't brought anything back for weeks. Right over is this driver, I won't mention his name, but he was a character. So just before dinner, he'd been to different restaurants in town, and you'll never guess what this fella brought back. A wooden tray with twenty-four meat pies on it, yeah. and we were eating meat pies all day. <laughs> we wouldn't dare say we wouldn't dare say where you got them from.
2: So he'd whip them. I mean. Well,
1: He'd whip them on the way out. Yes, he covered, he covered the tray with a sack with a sack, an empty sack, and brought it out. Another day, a chap said, "Now it's your turn to bring something back today," and you'll never guess what this fellow brought back. He brought. A sack with hot pot in. Now this sack was a paper bag, actually. You know, with a m- multi-layers yeah. paper yeah. bag. And yes. he cut it in two, crossed through the middle. And he must have put about a bucket full of hot pot in this <laughs> bag. And he brought it back. And everybody in the courtyard was eating hot pot
0: out of a bag. Clearly no shortage of fun captured in those great memories from Alfie Gilmore. At the age of 92, retired teacher Catherine Cowan became a published author and we join her now in conversation with David Collister about writing Alice's story, which is actually the story of both Catherine Cowan's parents, Alice and Robert. We begin with Catherine reading an extract from the book where she describes her father Robert's plan for a
3: grand tennis facility in Douglas in the area of Alexander Drive. Tennis was becoming a word to conjure with. Across the unnamed road, Robert had secured an area even bigger in size than his original holding. With proper management, Robert reckoned that a tennis area suitably set out to appeal to players and spectators would be a very fair commercial and fashionable venture. A high stone wall surrounded the area to ensure privacy. Trees and rare shrubs masked the harsh stone of the high walls. Here fig trees, there blazing cherry trees. Close trimmed box hedges and golden hues separated the several service courts, making the strong netting more decorative. In the centre of the whole area was erected a type of a mound from where everything was visible. This mound was furnished with wooden seats, solid, but easily manageable. In the far corner of the whole area stood a picturesque bungalow for the manager. On the opposite side, away from the spectators, stood the stable for the two ponies that grazed in the field beyond the high stone wall, stretching to Selburn Road. By the stable stood the shed which housed the trap. There were sheds for the bins of grain and nearby were storehouses of equipment for tennis and croquet together with the storage of chairs for spectators sitting. All Saints, the local church was on the opposite side of Alexander Drive. It was a pleasant area. The tennis ground was an excellent
2: idea, excellently prepared and well set up, with an honest manager. All boded well. The idea was well received. Just a reading from Alice's Story by Catherine Cowan. Now tennis in that area led to the creation of a road itself, didn't it? Tennis Road. It had no
3: name before the tennis ground was opened.
2: And Robert was your father? Yes. He decided he wanted to buy that area and create a tennis court.
3: He'd already bought it. When he had to sell off to Corona, the house in the corner of Albany Road, he had to sell off the apple orchard that he had already bought and uh, set up. And uh, he thought that if he made a tennis ground in this other area that he'd bought, that would uh, make up for having lost part of his original purchase. You've got a
2: remarkable recollection of all these events and the people and the characters.
3: Uh, They are honest recollections, yes. They're not absolutely exact sometimes, of course.
2: Now, you've put a lot of dialogue in, which, obviously, you've had to invent a little bit of that to give it narrative, have you?
3: (laughs) I've always been keen on drama, and in my mind, I, I fancy this book is a lot of dramatic interludes.
2: One of the chapters in Alice's story is entitled The School, and having been a school teacher, obviously you have been able to put a lot of character into this, a lot of feeling into it, and you've, you've got a tremendous atmosphere out of that old school. Were those the sort of conditions in which you went to school in, the, in those rather perhaps primitive classrooms?
3: Oh, no. Oh, no. No, I started off at a, a dame school in Woodland in, uh, Square. And uh, that was very, you know, hot milk Mm -hmm. in the middle of the morning. Oh, right.
2: But the school you described there was was quite uh, primitive and basic, was it? Oh,
3: very, very bleak. It was uh, the poorer part of the town, of course. The vicar's child started there, for example.
2: Because it was a church school,
3: in fact. Because it was a church school. Mm. And as soon as she was old enough, she was transferred to another school. How long has it taken you to write the story, then? Mm -hmm. A long time. So you've Uh, been uh, doing
2: a little over the years, haven't
3: you? Oh, yes, I have. I think, really, it's a study of characters rather than a study of...
2: uh, Of the social history and so on. Yes. You've livened it up by putting the characters in, putting words in their mouth. I mean, you take it to the point where your mother dies. Now, are you going to work on from there or not? Are you thinking of a second volume?
3: No, no, no. What I uh, was thinking of was... um, well, I started, actually. Two old ladies from the mainland came to live in the island. And uh, my brother and I were very lacking in respect. And we called them Gog and Magog. Mm. I have no idea what Gog and Magog is. <laughs> but one was very tall and fat and stately. And she was a charming old lady. The other was like a mosquito. <laughs> 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 through them we got to know the doctor who came from Austria oh gosh I can't remember his name now
0: well the story of Gog and Magog and the doctor who came from Austria was sadly not to be told by 92 year old author Catherine Cowan who is still fondly remembered by many who were taught by her the first day of September is supposed to be the first day of autumn, but I really want to hold on to a bit more summertime, and how better to do it than to share some of the wonderful stories of holiday-making on the island. Victor Neal was born in 1918 at number 5 Myrtle Street, one of a row of 11 houses opposite St Mary's Roman Catholic Church, here in the heart of Douglas. Let's listen now as he shares his story with David Collister. Well, in the summertime,
4: uh, most of the houses took visitors in. You could never be sure how many visitors were going to arrive. It was the same people that seemed to come year after year in the same weeks when the the various wakes were on. And the majority come from Lancashire or from Scotland. And uh, they become more like friends than visitors. But the, the work involved by uh, your parents running these places, because most of the, the visitors would buy their own food and bring it in, they would uh, have a cupboard each. Your mother would, uh, father would be uh, cooking this for them. Yes. Uh, we took people in. Sunday was always uh, the day when they all had a sit-down meal, and uh, it was a communal effort then. Half a crown a meal and maybe a tuppence for the condiments. We as kids, our job would be peeling the potatoes and a shell in the peas because you you bought the peas by the peck in those days, which was like a great big uh, can and they filled this up and uh, you would be there on a Saturday peeling these ready for the Sunday's dinner. Another job we had was cleaning the, the candle uh, sticks. making sure there was no uh, loose wax on them and uh, they would be put out on the table for the visitors going to bed and uh, that was it. No hot and cold water in those days either. There was just jugs of water in all the bedrooms so it was a spartan existence for them because it was <laughs> yeah. cold water. There was one toilet in the house, and that was in the backyard. And uh, it was like a big thunderbox. It was a big box okay. with a wooden lid on. Was it a dry toilet then? Uh, no, no. It was a, a... flush toilet. A flush toilet. Yeah. But it was um, in a little uh, room in the, the yard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there'd be a, a space at the top of the door and holes bored in the bottom so the allowed ventilation. No bathrooms in those days. The house, it had two floors. You went up the first flight of stairs and there was an outlet straight ahead. There was two small bedrooms. You had to go through one to get to the other. Then on the next floor, there was three bedrooms, one going uh, at the back of the house and one which had obviously, when the house had been built had been one room and probably was the drawing room uh, then and then there was three attics in the attics the only lighting was uh, from skylights and uh, when the visitors would come at the beginning when there was only a few we would be up in the attics sleeping and in the summer it was mighty hot up there under the eaves.
2: So who would go up there? Would your mother and father go as we'd well? It we'd all go up. And, and who else was in the family beside you there? Uh, it was my brother and I. Yes.
4: We did have a, a sister, but she died when she was two and a half. Uh, so
2: in the attic you all went then?
4: All up there. But when there was more and more people arrived, and one occasion there was two girls had booked and five of them turned up. And of course there was no r- really room for them. But they were decided they could sleep. There was a big bed there. They could sleep across the bed instead yeah. of lengthways. <laughs> yes. And And uh, by this time, we were on a mattress down in the, the, the kitchen, so the living room. And uh, that was the the way that most people did. They had to make their money in a f- few short weeks. And when you think of the few shillings they charged, yeah. the people in those days... Yeah. It was virtually just enough for to pay the bills mm. and maybe buy you
0: some new clothes at the end of the summer. Yes.
2: So and there was no big profits
0: made? In no. There. But there were other benefits from holiday time on the island which can never be measured in pounds, shillings and pence.
4: The things you remember about the this, uh, this summer was uh, how happy everybody was. They didn't have much money. Though and they, These people had come on their holidays but they would always be well-dressed. The girls would be dressed in in, in nice cotton dresses, or uh, I think it was called Macclesfield silk. And uh, the boys, uh, one of the favourite things in the 20s was the Oxford bags. This is the trousers with the very, very wide bottoms. Yes. But everybody seemed to be well-dressed, and there was no question of relying on the pubs for their entertainment mm. they seem to be able to make their entertainment and the number of people that be going around the streets singing mm. be banjos and ukuleles and real uh, big groups of young people really enjoying themselves yeah and going down the promenade they'd be linked up right across the promenade uh, pavements and they're going along happy but the girls always seem to bring it among their kit dance dress. Yes. And the dance halls was great. There was uh, a whole string of them from Derby Castle, the Palace, Villa Marina, Palli Dance in Strand Street. Yeah. And uh, you'd see them dancing. There would be 4,000 people at the Palace Ballroom and uh, of course the fellow that was in charge there, the uh, Master of Ceremonies patrolling up and down the centre of the the dance all making sure that people kept on going round anti-clockwise. And it was just like looking at a river movement to see them all going. And uh, they would be singing to the music as well, singing softly to
0: the music. They were absolutely great days. And at the same time, next week we'll be revisiting some more great days in the company of the people who lived at that time. Thank you to this week's storytellers, Alfie Gilmore, Catherine Cowan and Victor Neal. And of course, our thanks to the late David Collister, who first gathered together all these wonderful stories. And to Manx Radio's present-day archivist, Tim Price, for all his help. In the Archive Room next week, we'll be playing out in the streets with the children, discovering what was on Head Road long before Manx Radio arrived here, and there's more parrot stories. So do please join me just after six next Thursday evening for more treasures from the Archive Room, or listen at your leisure to the podcasts of this series. Go to manxradio.com and search for The Vault. There you'll find all the available episodes of the Archive Room and lots more from the Manx Radio Store of Nostalgia. But for now, this is Judith saying thank you for listening. And, well, who is this voice in our vintage sign-off?
2: Anyway, till next week. Salong, so you yeah, sir. The Nation
0: Station Next way